And so what, what is uh, surprising is A, the nuanced approach that Hayek took, because he's a member of this, or one of the principal exponents of the uh, Austrian School of Economics. And the um, US limb of that says, you know, we shouldn't have antitrust law, it should be repealed. In a nutshell, Hayek said free markets, they guaranteed liberty and economic growth, that uh, the, ro ro the, uh, the perfectly com competitive market was a, 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 a fiction. I mean, that, was, that was, wasn't an in the, you know, insight that he made on his own. But that the idea that markets only work when everyone knows everything, perfect information, is a misnomer. Markets work when people don't know everything. US and EU authorities have now waved through Microsoft's controversial acquisition of games maker activism. This leaves the UK's Competition Markets Authority out on the back foot in their attempt to block the merger as well as take a harsher line against big tech. But does this affair demonstrate that competition regulators and policymakers have been perhaps a little bit too quick to intervene in the digital sector? Welcome back to the IEA podcast. I'm Matthew Lesh and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top thinker. Today's question, is big tech bad? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Sento Veljanovoski, who is the IEA's Law and Economics Fellow, as well as a former academic and research director here at the IEA. He's a highly regarded competition lawyer and economist who's advised dozens of companies and governments on many controversial and high-profile cases. But he's also the author of a new, very timely IEA Hobart paper on the topic of Hayek on competition, a liberal antitrust for a digital age. And if you're interested in this, you can view it at the IEA's website at ia.org.uk. So Senzo, before we get on to your paper, I'm interested in what you make of this current Microsoft activism affair that seems to be going back and forth between different competition regulators, companies criticizing the UK government and the CMA. Um, where, where, where does this leave us at when it comes to this debate about big tech and, and competition? Yes, well, I think the situation is fairly confused because we have a, situa a situation where the European Commission has passed the uh, acquisition with some behavioural undertakings. The CMA has rejected it uh, and is now backing down a bit. Uh, in the United States, the FTC has lost their case in the Californian courts to block the merger. Um, so. Definitely the CMA is an outrider and, and it's a bit surprising because the CMA is, has generally taken a, uh, one could call it a permissive approach, but a, a realistic approach of mergers. But there has been a backlash in the last several years, which seems to have affected the CMA under its new leadership more so than the European Commission, which was a leader in global regulation mm -hmm. of digital mergers and anything digital. Now the CMA is trying to take that role and has found itself uh, in left field, so to, sp to speak. Um, generally, in merger clearance law, these vertical mergers where the companies are operating in different markets are generally treated as fairly benign. But the situation has arisen that some of well, the general consensus amongst com a lot of competition lawyers is that the regulators have been too uh, um, liberal in allowing they often quote 400 mergers have been passed through without anyone being blocked. The most famous example here being perhaps Meta acquiring Instagram and that being going on to be a runaway success. And, and WhatsApp and those type of uh, relationships. 
And they've developed a theory called killer acquisitions, saying that uh, big tech is going into the market, buying these nascent potential competitors with new ideas and basically co-opting them into their portfolio of activities and therefore killing off future competition. Mm. There's very little evidence of uh, this happening. It, it, it's based on a, a study done of pharmaceutical mergers, which are quite different, and they found that 6% could be characterised as killer acquisitions. But it's not the case with uh, digital mergers. So the empirical basis for trying to block these vertical mergers and conglomerate mergers is very suspect. So we have to see, because the CMA now is, is backing down, or it looks like it's backing down, and entered into discussions with uh, um, Microsoft. And also, uh, Microsoft has done a deal, report today in the FT, with uh, Sony, who were concerned that uh, some of the, the cloud gaming would be blocked from its uh, Sony Playstations, and they've done a deal. So that's... Yeah, so the, the key point here, were, I mean, I, I think from, from my understanding, Microsoft were effectively arguing that um, you know, we're happy to keep for, for a 10-year period at the very least Call of Duty accessible on other gaming platforms, including Sony PlayStation, yes. um, and they weren't going to intend to make it exclusive. Then the CMA came back and said, well, what we're worried about here is this very new and specific market, which is the cloud gaming market, which is, which is not a, a big part of the sector, but the CMA says could be a big part of the sector. And if Microsoft gets Call of Duty and then it's exclusive to the, the cloud, their cloud only, perhaps that could give them some market power. Now, of course, then Microsoft comes back and says, well, and even Activision says, we can only compete with Sony if we have this merger. We need this size in order to be effective competitors. So Sony, effective, uh, their lobbying worked, at, at least in the first instance, but it doesn't seem to be carrying through now. Yeah, it's all predicated on the assumption that the, the competition regulators know better where the markets are moving uh, than the companies themselves. And also, uh, the competition regulators come in for a lot of pressure from the smaller operators who believe that they're being hard done. And in some cases that's correct. But, uh, you know, we make a push for uh, competition authorities taking account of dynamic competition and innovation. But I think the CMA has gone too far in saying that anything that looks like a potential hypothetical threat uh, will be blocked. Yeah. Um, so, and so, I think that's untenable. Uh, and we'll come to this moment in a second with Hayek, but you know, Hayek's idea is, well, dynamic comp competition, complex market um, developments, you can't necessarily predict the way they're going to go, and therefore you have to be humble and, and modest. It seems the CMA's conclusion is, well, things are very complex in the future, and therefore we can predict that this might happen, and therefore we must intervene. That's right. I mean, it goes to this concept of precautionary principle, that, you know, yeah. any threat, no matter how remote, have to, has to be dealt with because big tech is big and yeah. uh, ubiquitous. So your Hayek paper that um, I, I really want to get into discussing here is kind of applying, I suppose, an, an old thinker, a historical thinker, to current problems. I, I don't think Hayek could have necessarily foreseen it. In fact, he, he might yeah. say he would have had a knowledge problem even yeah, attempting to foceed the, yeah. the emergence but, of digital markets. Yeah, perhaps we should use the word contemporary thinker because I'm an old thinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this all came about from the joint conference we had here at the IEA uh, to celebrate uh, 40 years of one of Hayek's publications. And uh, Hayek has an importance to the IEA as he was, in a sense, the intellectual founder of the IEA. But what, what one wanted to look at is uh, what Hayek said about competition and competition law generally um, and what the uh, relevance was to the digital age because he was clearly uh, an analogue thinker, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> a mechanical, industrial thinker. He died before the digital age really took off. 
Um, and so what, what is uh, surprising is, A, the nuanced approach that Hayek took, because he's a member of this, or one of the principal exponents of the Austrian School of Economics, and the um, US limb of that says, you know, we shouldn't have antitrust law, it should be repealed. Whereas Hayek took a much more nuanced approach. He was a, a lawyer by training, a uh, continental lawyer, spent time in the LSC, he was quite uh, attracted to the British legal system and the common law. And so I go through various phases, but in a nutshell, Hayek said uh, what he was concerned was with free markets, they guaranteed liberty and economic growth, that uh, the, ro ro the, uh, the perfectly com competitive market was a, 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 a fiction. I mean, that, was, that was, wasn't an in the, you know, insight that he made on his own, but that the idea that markets only work when everyone knows everything, perfect information, is uh, a misnomer. Markets work when people don't know everything that the role of pri the price system is to encapsulate information so that people have to know very little. They just have to know about the scarcity and value of goods and services. They all have to look at the price. But it's essential that the market be freely competitive. And in order for the market to be freely competitive, we need to remove government regulation that's, that is, encourages monopoly. We need a legal framework mm. in which competition uh, can take place, that the laissez-faire approach that, you know, private property and freedom of contract is sufficient to solve all problems, uh, A, begs the question of what private property rights look like and what is what the courts will enforce in con contractual relationships. But we need a, a positive agenda. And that, that will surprise a lot of people who have read snippets of Hayek or regurgitations of Hayek's views. Uh, he was in favour of a lot of state intervention, uh, but let's put that aside. He... he was concerned about monopoly, whereas a lot of other Austrians say monopoly doesn't persist because it gets eroded by competition, innovation, cartels are unstable and uh, disintegrate, um, and all we have to do is have a hands-off approach. He didn't agree with that. He said uh, it was quite a limited antitrust that he was proposing that uh, restraints of trade should be unenforceable, that some monopolies can price discriminate, and I think what he had in mind was predatory pricing, to block, exclude competitors, and we should have rules against that. This is this is the you lower your prices to drive a competitor out of the market, and then you yeah. after they're, they're out of the market, you put them back up. And exactly, and uh, he was not a, a great fan of uh, competition authorities such as the CMA. He said that they would uh, inevitably make exceptions to the law, um, and what he proposed, uh, because he was influenced, I think, somewhat by American antitrust of having. Uh, triple damages uh, enforced privately through the courts in litigation and uh, lawyers encouraged to support these uh, cases for compensation through contingency fees. Let's, let's go back um, to the, the kind of starting way in terms of um, Hayek, the way he viewed markets. So he kind of rejected the very, I suppose, kind of simplistic view of markets that can be given in a you know, high school or first year economics lesson where you say, you know, you have a, the, the perfect market um, in which you have you know, full knowledge between all buyers and sellers, um, a, a large number of um, buyers and sellers, and you work to a competitive price through that system. Now, mm. he, he, he understood that, and maybe perhaps it was never intending to be anything more than just kind of a theoretical exposition. But I think that basic logic, which is understood quite widely, 
then leads to this perception, well, any market that doesn't fulfill that criteria must be a market failure, that, that must require some kind of state intervention to ensure that you know, customers are not being ripped off by the relatively small number of sellers. And, and Hayek very much was of the view that that, that wasn't the case, that the big in itself is not necessarily bad. You can have a relatively small number of players in market, but can still be highly competitive. Exactly. Uh, his view that size didn't matter. Um, size was driven by technological market conditions. Um, big corporations competed with each other, and I, I, he used the expression, size is a powerful anecdote against size. And we see that in the big tech, you know, uh, recently with uh, the encroachment of uh, uh, Facebook against uh, what's Elon? Twitter. Twitter, exactly. Yeah, thre threads is the new competitor. The threads. Pe people are annoyed about, some people are annoyed about threads because it's a meta competing with Twitter, when in fact, from any kind of innovative pro-consumer perspective, it's great news. Yeah. Um, so he, he also said that uh, this view that big is bad is oddly based on a sort of liberal concept of free competition, but leading to very illiberal ideas about controlling big tech. So he, he wasn't that bothered. What he was bothered about was where, where these big corporations um, could exclude competitors by... I mean, he focused... In, on price discrimination, but it could be any discriminatory treatment that uh, wasn't justified by uh, competitive forces. Um, and he also had a lot to say about things that uh, free marketeers would find quite unusual. He was against patents, trademarks and copyrights. He said that they were pro-monopolistic and led to oversized enterprises. He was against limited liability or was worried about limited liability and treating corporations as legal persons because that, again, led to uh, corporations uh, being larger than they should be based on economic considerations. He was against cross-ownership of corporation owning shares in other corporations. Um, so a lot of that type of thinking was quite common pre-Chicago. I know you mentioned Chicago, or you wanted to talk about Chicago and his period there. But a lot of those think thinking was... Uh, formed here in London and, and in Germany, where he, Austria, where he, he originated from. And that uh, uh, carried through uh, to his later writings. Um, and often he, he made these statements, but he didn't explain exactly the <laughs> mechanics of they well, were. That, that leaves you as the high scholar to try and, to try and figure <laughs> it out. So, so I think it's probably worth kind of unpacking it in some ways where he might be kind of uncomfortable with intervention, but where he might um, first, and then maybe we can get on to some of the ways in which you could intervene successfully. So the kind of intervention you wouldn't be that comfortable with is basically what we're talking about earlier, which is the, the CMA's antics with trying to intervene in a market that is dynamic and ever-changing on the basis of a, a kind of precautionary approach and, and just because the perception that one company is big, it, it must be, have, there must be a general bias against that company um, and we know better in terms of how it can develop. Yeah. Yes, I, I mean, the CMA's revised merger guidelines would have been welcomed by him because it, it made a lot out of dynamic competition um, and potential competition and looking uh, at a digital e ecosystem or ecosystem. Because another aspect of it is he, he had a very complex view of market processes and legal processes. And there's a, 
a branch of economics now called complexity economics, and he would have been quite uh, uh, quite a fan of that. Um, so everything is quite difficult to predict. You've got, just got to get the conditions right in the marketplace. So, but he would have been disappointed, I think, in the the, start, the application of that by the CMA. Um, that that the CMA was blocking a merger, which it really didn't adequately explain the conceptual basis of why it did what it did. And it had been warned by the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which is the equivalent of High Court for Competition Law Issues, in the Giffey merger, to explain better not only why it did something, but what were the alternatives that potentially were foreseeable. Uh, and it didn't do that in this acquisition. So uh, Microsoft, understandably, was going to appeal before the Competition Appeal Tribunal, but everything appears to be stayed at the moment as the CMA tries to, if I can put it provocatively, wriggle out of its position yeah. at the moment. I mean, this kind of worries me even as a model in itself, <clears throat> which is you have uh, this situation where effectively the largely behind closed doors, I assume, a competition regulator will get together with a big tech company and, you know, breach some deal about the way they operate. You know, if they're effective lobbyists, they'll get a good deal out of it. If they're ineffective lobbyists, they'll get a bad deal out of it. It seems that's only going to keep expanding under the government's um, digital markets yeah. and competition bill and the creation of um, the, the digital markets unit within the CMA that gives even more discretionary yes. interventionist powers to codes of conduct and um, pro-competition debate. Well, there would have been another aspect of Hayek's uh, more legal theory was the rule of law. And I think one of the problems with a lot of regulation at the moment is that the law, the hard law legislation is quite general and soft law, which is the enforcement practices of the regulators, uh, basically makes the law. And they can move in various directions. As you can see, they can either have a permissive approach to big tech mergers and then f come under criticism saying that you're allowing all these through and do a 180 degree turn and have a, a very restrictive approach to mergers. And I think there is a big question about how we control this because as you say, a lot of this stuff is sub-rosa. We don't know what's going on behind. Uh, and so they weigh through some things, they get upset about other things. Um, and I think there's a big question about the, the rule of law and the accountability of regulators and their uh, control by the courts. So, and, and you've kind of hinted it a few times now that um, you know, those, those who read Hayek from a perspective of almost assuming that he's an anarchist would be very disappointed <laughs> um, by his actual writing or even uh, your paper on Hayek. I thought there was one interesting note you made uh, that you haven't mentioned, which was um, in the Reader's Digest version of uh, A Road to Surfton, it, it says, you know, high exports, you know, competitive open markets, except in the case of monopolies. Apparently he never said that in the actual Road to Surfton. But he did say in other places the kind of role of the state in terms of setting the rules of the game. And um, you've already mentioned intellectual property rights as, as a key one. And I assume he'd be supportive of, you know, maybe shorter periods or less... Um, in-depth copyright, you know, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of model do you think would be appropriate? Well, I mean, he was quite explicit and, and a, a lot of his thinking about this happened in, in the 1940s. Um, the, his concern about competition issues um, and the industry was fashioned by uh, the rise of Nazism in uh, Germany and he saw I mean, cartels were rife in Germany and in a lot of other countries at that time. And he's, he saw, you know, the, the industrial complexes supporting national socialism. We've ha had a discussion here 
a couple of weeks ago where historically that may not have been as uh, clear-cut as uh, Hayek proposed. But if you read his uh, uh, statement, I mean, he would have been in, in, in favour of uh, planning rules, you know, to deal with environmental problems. Um, he would have been in, in, in as you say, limiting uh, pro property rights, patents, copyright. Intellectual property rights. Yeah, because he saw them as monopoly rights, whereas when he went to Chicago, the whole revision that Chicago brought about, which he was slightly separated from, was that, you know, patents encourage innovation, um, and therefore they're not monopoly rights, they're exclusive rights, but they're not monopoly yeah. rights. Is, uh, is there, I don't know what your opinion is this, but I, I find myself very conflicted on this point, because in my mind, if the, the government creates such a regulatory barrier, pharmaceutical case being here the number one, where it costs you know, maybe 100 million US dollars to bring a drug to market, some level of um, you know, patent monopoly does seem reasonable for some period of time, um, even if perhaps it should be shortened yeah. um, quite substantially. Well, the irony is that uh, Hayek was a great fan of the Magna Carta, <laughs> and the Magna Carta uh, instigated uh, patents as an as a antidote to the, the monopoly privileges uh, given by the monarch uh, at the time, and said that you can only give a, a privilege uh, if there's an innovation, basically. The problem, as I understand it, is A, the empirical evidence that patents encourage innovation is uh, weak at best. Uh, Arnold Plant, who was a, a, a sort of supporter or intellectual supporter of the IEA from the LSE at the time, Arthur Seldon was here, wrote a number of articles uh, lambasting patents and copyrights and saying first mover advantages were often sufficient for them to regain, yeah. recoup. So, you know, Apple gets to make loads of money by bringing the iPhone first to market. They don't need to have exactly. every, every element of the iPhone to be patented and, and prevented exactly. anyone else from making it. Exactly. And I think the other problem uh, is that the way patents are issued these has led to a lot of inefficiencies, uh, things that are not genuinely innovative, and then companies go out and patent hundreds of things to block yeah. someone else. Yeah, well, there's companies that only exist for the purposes of owning patents exactly. and then licensing rights to things, which right. doesn't seem like the, the so that you want. The, the, that, that was uh, his view, and he, he, was, he would have he supported you know, interventions when there were pandemics and um, social services, obviously the army and things like that. So if you, if you actually read that section of his uh, um, writings, uh, it, it looks highly interventionist. It looks like a market failure approach, highly interventionist. So, socialist Hayek, yeah. Well, not quite. <laughs> when he first set this out, which was in the Mont Pelerin inaugural meeting in 1947, his mentor, von Mises, uh, Ludwig von Mises, who was the sort of leader and became a leader of the sort of American libertarianism branch of the Austrian economic approach, um, stormed out and called everyone there a socialist. <laughs> so he was controversial, not only generally, but also within liberal, classical liberal circles, mm. uh, and probably was at, at one uh, extreme of the, the spectrum of where the state should intervene and, and the contours of the market versus the state. Yeah. So where I think you also say Hayek would have been concerned would have been over taxation, over regulation. You know, I, I think the government's kind of approach to competition policy is completely contradictory when it comes to the digital sector. Because on the one hand, they're creating this 
a whole new sect of the CMA on the basis that there is enough competition in the digital sector. On the other hand, though, they've got the online safety bill, which will put up huge barriers to entry for anyone who wants to try to compete. Well, well that's what uh, Hayek would have uh, uh, criticised. And it's what Victoria Houston and I, in our, our, port, our report on the DMU, said is you're making an exception for digital mergers and digital regulation, but you've established already, and this merger being an example, that you can block them using general competition law rules. Why do we need a whole new regulated antitrust set of rules? Uh, it's that uh, tension uh, that you're turning the competition regulator, which is generally an ex-post regulator, it, it tries to stop distortions of competition rather than promote competition uh, proactively uh, into a regulator. And we've got Ofcom, which was supposed to be the communications regulator, could easily have taken over that role, which actually has concurrent powers to enforce comp the general competition rules and has special rules. So w we're mixing and matching, you know, Competition regulators now, you know, trying to promote or encourage sustainability, and it's a bit of an outrider in its approach to that too. Uh, and so it's become much more interventionist. Um, and we must remember uh, two things, or recall two things. First of all, European competition law uh, was heavily influenced by Ordo liberals, which were fellow travellers of Hayek's liberalism. They were Austrian German. Uh, they had more of a social aspect to the, to the market, but their, their views have, ch have changed. Um, and I forget the second point, so... Yeah. <laughs> why, why, don't we, why don't we move on to one final thought that I'm interested in hearing about is how Hayek's view differs from the kind of Chicago school. So I think very much you, you hear about, you know, in, in the, the history of competition law from a you know, very basic perspective, you had this period of kind of antitrust busting from the FDR period. <clears throat> And then you get a real conversion about what the purpose is of competition law through the influence, the hikes. So I, I, I presume that also then influences what goes on in the, the EU and, and the, U, the US and it, sorry, the EU and the UK, which is to say the purposes of competition law become quite simply just um, focused on price. It's a question of, you know, what, what is in the consumer benefit? What is the lowest price? And the only justification for intervention is you can actually prove consumer harm. And I think often in the, um, one of the key problems in the digital and tech space is um, the, the, the substantiation of actual consumer harm is, is often non-existent, particularly because totally. they're, free, they're free products. You, yeah. um, they're free innovative products. From, from a Chicago school perspective, those interventions are absurd on the face of it and often also rent-seeking because you're, the, the real purpose of what's going on here is you're intervening in the market for one competitor, you know, arguably Sony being the case in the Microsoft activism, acquisition question. Sony particularly <clears throat> has a certain interest in a certain outcome, they're going to use claims about competition to get there, but it's really just rent-seeking by a, a competitor by a third party. Um, and the digital market competition bill is very much being pushed by those mid-sized companies that have issues with um, not necessarily the consumer prices or anything along those lines, just their relationship with big tech. Um, and, and you get these interventions against that kind of Chicago school basis. Now, I don't know mm. whether, whether how Hayek kind of viewed that Chicago school flip in competition law because it is still probably in some ways more interventionist I, I supposed uh, in the sense that you still have a competition regulator in the Chicago school model yeah. but it just has a different purpose yes there's an odd relationship because all, all those Chicago guys were involved with Hayek 
at the Mount Pelerin Society and, and intellectually. But their views changed over time. And I think the greatest influence on the Chicago School was Aaron Director, who was an eco economist in the law school and the, I think the brother-in-law of Milton Friedman. <laughs> uh, and Friedman was pro-antitrust and then became anti-antitrust. George Stigler, another big name in the Chicago School, was initially anti-antitrust and then became pro-antitrust. And of course, uh, Robert Bork, wrote this sort of treatise with, that said, you know, consumer welfare is the litmus test of competition intervention. But what he meant was actually economic efficiency. It didn't just mean consumer welfare. It was a shorthand for that. Um, Hayek, I think, just ignored all that, quite frankly. He, he, the goal for him for competition policy to the, and the changes in taxation and all those things was to protect competition, to encourage free competition and free competition would lead to maximum economic growth and maximum liberty. And that was his, he wasn't interested in consumer welfare. He, it's an old style uh, approach that wasn't tainted by uh, the Chicago school, even though they talked to each other. And I think in terms of his antitrust approach, he was more influenced by the uh, Rothbard and uh, not so much Mises, but uh, Amantano, I think he's, uh, he pronounced his name, who, who were fairly anti-antitrust, but he still, I think because of his legal training, was uh, not that uh, convinced that just letting things rip <laughs> was the, the best policy. Well, Senso, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank, thank you so much. For those who are interested in learning more and, and reading the paper, you can now read The High Com on Competition, a liberal antitrust for a digital age. It's available on ia.org.uk. Um, if you have been enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider and tune in again next week.